is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. All right, guys. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I am Ashton Cohen, of course. I'm joined today by Todd Holsey. He is a retired FBI supervisory special agent who spent multiple decades uh, in the Federal Bureau of Investigations, along with uh, experience in different government agencies, and which we will get into today. Todd, thanks so much for uh, being with us today. Ashton, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. So I, I think a good place to start, I'd love to get your sort of overview of, of your career in the FBI, what sorts of things you focus on as, as context, and then uh, there are a lot of topics I'd like to get into from that. Well, I started out with the Treasury Department back in 1988. I was a special agent with the U.S. Treasury Department from 88 to 93. I quit and went to graduate school, then law school, passed the bar, started practicing law, thought that was for the birds, and uh, decided that I missed putting the puzzle together, so I applied to the FBI. And uh, 14 months after submitting my initial application, I was at Quantico going through new agents training and spent the balance of my federal uh, agent service with the Bureau retiring in March of 2014 with a total of 21 years of federal agent service. During that time, I spent, you know, roughly in blocks about eight years working international narcotics trafficking. That's between the Treasury Department and the FBI. And then I spent about eight years working foreign counterintelligence. And that also included working against nation state WMD programs. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, the rest of my career was spent as a chief counsel in, uh, in an FBI field division. In my case, I was the chief counsel of the uh, El Paso division of the FBI. So you, you have you have experience in three very pertinent areas right now. As FBI agent at the time and now today, drug trafficking has obviously become, especially during this last decade, as reaches zenith. Mexican cartels are among the most powerful criminal organizations basically ever, at least in modern times, even more powerful than the Colombian ones. Um, obviously, we have fentanyl records amounts of deaths from fentanyl and opioids and which is, and other sorts of narcotics which are sh- shipped across our border, some of which manufactured in China. What, what's your view on how this has happened, how it's gone so out of control, what the FBI and related agencies have done wrong to stop it and what they should be doing instead? That is a question that we can fill your entire podcast with. Um, I think it's important to note before beginning that the FBI did not have federal narcotics jurisdiction until the mid-1980s. And it received that jurisdiction because it does have organized crime jurisdiction and organized crime groups were trafficking narcotics to make illicit money. So the Bureau was granted by Congress the uh, jurisdiction to do that. But you really have to go back to 1972 when Richard Nixon announced the war on drugs. Prior to that, there were two prominent federal agencies, well, three really prominent federal agencies working 
against international narcotics trafficking. That was a Treasury Department agency called the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or the FBN, and a Justice Department agency called the BNDD, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. There was also the agency that was then called the United States Customs Service. So in about 1972, 71, 72, 73 timeframe, the FBN and the BNDD were merged and a thousand special agents from the United States Customs Service were withdrawn from the Customs Service, which was a treasury agency, uh, into this new agency called the Drug Enforcement Administration. The DEA was charged with enforcing the federal narcotics laws. So the Bureau didn't come into federal narcotics enforcement until about 15 years after the founding of DEA. But I think that the approach um, with, in terms of drug trafficking, what's gone wrong? This is my personal opinion based on my professional observations over the years, starting in 1988, is that so much of the focus, and you have different levels of drug trafficking. You have the right. international organized crime, the Colombian cartels, the Mexican cartels, and then you, you have everything across the, the transportation and distribution network until you get to the salesman standing on a street corner, okay? And so much of the enforcement effort was placed on that street corner salesman. Right, right. And it wasn't placed on the organizations. And to be honest about it, the reason you have a federal law enforcement agency to work a particular crime problem is to go after the organizations behind the crime problems, because any police or sheriff's department can work the guy or, or you know, the dude or dudette, almost always a dude, on the street corner selling drugs. So a lot of the federal effort was put towards the street level narcotics enforcement when it should have been put towards countering or fighting against the organizations that were facilitating, you know, the master, the transportation of mass narcotics internationally across your borders. And that wasn't done. That was mistake number one. I want to note for you in the audience that every speck of cocaine, every little grain of cocaine powder that is sold and used in the United States of America comes from South America. There's none of it that is produced domestically. Right, right. Yet I submit to you, you could go to any urban high school and many suburban ones, maybe most suburban ones, and even a lot of rural ones, and find somebody who can put cocaine in your hands uh, in exchange for dollar bills. Mm -hmm. You think about the product coming from another continent and it still gets in here. So really the big disconnect in the beginning was going after street level narcotics enforcement. But let's talk about how government agencies operate. If you're gonna go after a criminal organization, it's gonna take tremendous amount of resources and time. When you have a international criminal investigation ongoing, you're unlikely to make any arrests for months, maybe years, depending upon the ultimate target of the investigation. Well, what does Congress want to know when you go for your annual budget? How many cases have you worked? How many arrests have you made? Mm -hmm. Well, you can't tell Congress, well, we're working these big giant cases that are international in scope, have hundreds, maybe thousands, thousands of potential defendants. So we're waiting to wrap the, you know, these cases up before we make arrests. Congress right. will turn the spigot off and now you have no funding. Right. That, and that's so one of the great, I just want to touch on that. That's one of the sure. sort of misaligned incentives with government programs, government bureaucracy, because when a, a agency does well and goes under budget, they're actually um, not rewarded for it. Right. They're actually, right. They're actually punished for it in a sense. Because they're like, oh, well, you don't need this kind of money. You're, you're doing it on 
you know, for 20% less. I need only these many. It's, so it's the incentives are almost aligned to be slower, be less productive, less fruitful, um, be over budget, because that way you can keep signaling to Congress, oh yeah, we need more people, we need more money, we need more more resources. So yeah, good. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and you know, federal agencies, state and local agencies are not immune to inflationary pressures. Right. So gasoline for a fleet of vehicles, a piece of equipment is more expensive the next year than it was the year before. Mm-hmm. So when you get your budget cut because you're not producing, you know, quote, producing, close quote, enough, then that's not, that doesn't signal good things for the agency to continue its main mission. So that is kind of in a nutshell, it's a simplistic, but still a very real example of mm-hmm. why street level narcotics trafficking was targeted by, by the DEA and its predecessor federal agencies. Uh, for the most part, right to get sort of the arrests on the record to show that you're doing you're doing something, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a tangent, but let me use it as an example. Hopefully, I can it'll be clear to the listeners and the viewers is that uh, SWAT teams are absolutely necessary in modern law enforcement. Okay, we can argue whether the the inspector general of the Department of Education needs a SWAT team. It doesn't, in my opinion. But if you're a police department, a sheriff's department, a major federal agency, you need a SWAT team, of course. Well, you have, you know, people have to try out for it. They got to meet the standards. They got to do, you know, fairly extensive training, not nearly like military training, but fairly extensive training. And uh, then they have to go, you know, once a week, twice a week, instead of being on patrol, they're at SWAT training, right? In many departments. So you never use this because you're waiting for the hostage uh, scenario to play out or something like that. Well, it never, you know, it rarely happens that way. So you end up using your SWAT team to serve warrants when, before there was such a thing, you had a couple of detectives and a couple of uniformed officers kick a door in and serve a warrant. Mm-hmm. Now you have a SWAT team showing up and they're throwing flashbangs in, you know, they're breaking the door down um, with a battering right, ram, right. et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it, it's, it's kind of like mission creep because whoever the governing body is is going to say, well, you, you have this expensive SWAT team, you never use it. So it ends up getting used. So by, by using that analogy, the federal agencies, again, they concentrate on street enforcement because it generated statistics. But another big problem going back to the 1970s is, and let me ask you this question, what is the biggest logistical problem that a, uh, that a drug trafficker has? I, I mean, in terms of getting something over the border? That is a big problem. Right. Well, not the biggest. Not, not the biggest. So not the biggest. Well, they're in a cash and carry business. The biggest problem right, is right. disposing of all the cash. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Now, I would like somebody to tell me how many top American bankers went to prison for facilitating the money laundering by international cartels. I'll submit yeah. to you that if any were, it's less than the five fingers on my right hand. Okay? Right. How many banks, how many banks? were prosecuted. You know, you're a lawyer, corporate entity is a corporate person, a corporation can be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. How many banks were prosecuted and then the businesses dissolved for facilitating money laundering? No, absolutely not. Zero, yep. to my knowledge. Yep. Maybe the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, a case from the 80s, can be used as an example. But basically, nobody went to the people who facilitated the necessary money laundering. Mm-hmm. Now, look, I'm a 57-year-old white guy, right? Middle class, Irish Catholic American, grew up in a working class Irish Catholic family, suburban Dallas, Texas. And I will tell you this, 
is that it was much easier to focus on the 17-year-old black kid standing on the corner slinging dope, you know, as a criminal investigative matter, mm-hmm. than the guy wearing a three-piece suit who's sitting in a bank in New York City mm-hmm. or any big city in mm-hmm. America. It was easier to concentrate on that guy Southern than Trump. it was almost all, you know, almost always, let's just, you know, the, especially in the 70s and 80s, you know, the white guy in the three-piece suit, mm-hmm. you know, who's upper middle class or higher. How many, you know, like I said, they didn't go to jail. Right. But the 17-year-old black kid slinging dope on the street corner went to prison, often for a very long time. So our enforcement priorities were all wrong from the beginning. And uh, we know, can I cuss on your show? Of course. So money talks and bullshit walks. That is, that's the law of the universe, mm-hmm. one of the laws of the universe. It's an immutable law of the universe. And those who had money didn't get prosecuted. And so that these were big faults. And Ashton, we will never, ever recover from those two things, the focus on street enforcement Mm -hmm. instead of against the organizations themselves, and then the failure to properly attack the problem of money laundering. Now, I'm saying money laundering cases haven't been made. Thousands of them have. But like I said, how many big time- Yeah, that's true, they never go to jail. Yeah, so so that's, so we're, 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 um, the drug war is a complete and total failure and there's no way to get it back, my opinion. Uh, it's it's a it's a very sobering analysis and makes tons of sense. The uh, yeah, I'm I'm instantly reminded as well of the Deutsche Bank, who was uh, you know basically getting out of all these uh, subverting sanctions for Russian oligarchs, and and yeah, again, nothing happens to them. And they they've been involved in so many of these um, basically conspiracies to move around money for some of the worst people in the world. Again, yeah, nothing happens, right? So the fact that these banks Many of them obviously knew or should have known, constructive knows, right, where where this money was coming from. And no one was prosecuted, as you said. And the the sort of low-hanging fruits were the guys on the corner who can sort of check a box and make it look like you're doing something. That sort of goes to the fundamental problem of of online incentives when you talk about these government bureaucracies. What I tangent based on on the cartels and their power. What do you make of, because this is always one of the trickiest things, even when we do go after the cartels and when we're successful, what happens is you break up, you know, Escobar and the the Cali cartel, and then a bunch of small cartels then metastasize. And so what happens in Mexico, where the big guys like Guzman go, and then there's a vacuum. And then you have like, 10 different cartels now competing instead of one guy who controlled everything. And now you have even more violence. And it's almost like a, a catch-22 because if you the, the, the big guy becomes so powerful that he basically you know, controls, in effect, the country or at least regions of the country at the very least. Yes. And then, then, you, then you, you topple him and then you have 10 small cartels who then sort of compete and cause massive mayhem destruction in the wake. What do you what do you make of that situation? Is there any way sort of a, around any of that? No. No. The Mexican <laughs> cartel. Oh, that's surprising, yeah. If the Mexican government, which is I mean, the corruption in Mexico has facilitated the conditions on the ground there today. Mm-hmm. And now 
the cartels are so powerful, there is no way for the Mexican government to successfully combat them. Mm-hmm. There is an insurgency. This is, you know, not that the news media ever was actually objective, but to the degree that it was, it is not today. And and also our news media, you have to go to the BBC to get a regular news report. And I'm not saying that they're not, they don't have their own biases right, right. over there, the BBC. But what I'm saying is you want to get a news report that includes pertinent international news stories mm-hmm. as well that's as really maybe right. local mm-hmm. news stories. You don't get them on, you don't get it on American news yep. media. That's right. And there's a full-blown military insurgency going on in Mexico today. When have you heard on a Sunday talk show or, you know, uh, ABC News Tonight or any of its competitors, in which they talk about the insurgency there in any detail. You know, we'll talk about it in terms of, you know, 50 dead bodies were found hanging from bridges today. Right, or, or the uh, demographic <laughs> profile of, of the Goldman Sachs board members. That's that's what we get. Yes, that's, that's more important than the news today. That's exactly right. Uh, so we'll so tell you the story about the 50 dead bodies found hanging from bridges in Mexico. They never... They, no coverage really of anything more mm-hmm. in depth. Right. And the Mexican cartels are simply too powerful uh, for the Mexican government to deal with. And if you're an honest Mexican official, it, it really it really boils down to this. Cartel goes to you. Let, let's just pick one. You are a police chief in a small Mexican town. Cartel goes to you and says, hey, chief, here's what we're going to do. We're going to move these trucks through your town. And, um, you know, they got product in them. And we don't want you to stop them. And so we're going to pay you $1,000 a week, $100,000 a year, whatever. Because there's also the cartels that have, you know, endless supplies of money. Absolutely. All right. So they can pay whatever they want. So let's just great say. Great margins. Great margins. And they can pay a lot of money. So they tell the, tell the police chief, hey, you know, what do you make a year? Well, well, we'll triple that. Put that money in your pocket. All we want is you to look the other way. So the police chief says, you know, well, I don't want to do that. And then the cartel representatives say, well, chief, here's the deal. You let us go through the town and we'll pay you triple your annual salary, quadruple your annual salary. Or if you don't, we will kill you and every member of your family. Mm -hmm. And we will do so in very gruesome ways. Mm -hmm. In fact, you will watch us gruesomely kill the members of your family before we gruesomely kill you. So which is it? And in Mexico, the saying is plomo o plata, right? lead or silver. Mm -hmm. And the cartels are so powerful that they can make that deal with with Mexican officials. I'm talking governors and senators and members of state legislatures and mayors and police chiefs and head of federal agencies. All of these people, they can have the same deal made. They can either shut their eyes shut their mouths, take the money and facilitate or, or die, usually very horribly. That's another aspect I don't think that the American people are um, really um, aware of. You know, we hear, have heard a lot about ISIS and their predations against prisoners, uh, burning people alive, boiling people alive, skinning people alive. Uh, most people don't realize that the ISIS was watching what the Mexican cartels were doing and emulating right. that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm glad you know, because most people don't know that. Right. Yeah. There's information been developed for years, uh, you know, in federal law enforcement that these these two groups, disparate though they are, are basically in a, in a campaign to one-up each other. Now, that shows you uh, the depravity of 
both ISIS and the Mexican cartels. But it's very difficult for any Mexican official who's honest to operate against the cartels. And then globally speaking, I mean, the whole Mexican government is so rife with corruption, it always has been, that there's no getting it back in Mexico. And let me ask you this question. Well, I won't ask you the question. I'll just state the fact. 25% of Mexico's population, well, I'll state it in terms of a question. Where does 25% of the Mexican population live? In the U.S. In the United States of right. America. And all cartel activities, much like La Cosa Nostra, many organized crime uh, organizations throughout history, is very family-based. How many siblings and cousins are in the United States living here legally mm -hmm. and illegally mm -hmm. whose brother, cousin, dad, whatever, is, is involved in narcotics trafficking? Right, right. We have this massive massive distribution network that we can never get rid of. Because when you have a population of a nation, an 80 some odd million person nation, maybe it's more than that, uh, 25% of the population, because Mexico sucks so bad, a quarter of its population has to relocate mm -hmm. to the adjacent country, right. the United States. It Despite also being the 15th largest economy in the world, you know, and, and it's just a absolute disaster case. Oh, I just want to yeah. touch, yeah, I just want to touch on something you, you mentioned about the level of corruption in Mexico, and I think this really encapsulates it. I remember, so obviously, you know, those of us who have are familiar with this, who have seen even shows like Narcos on Netflix, which I think does a pretty dramatic and interesting job of showing the progression of the Colombian and the Mexican cartels. So it used to be that Mexican officials, as you say, would would bribe government employees in this way, you know, uh, letter silver, and you know, you don't do this, we're going to kill you. And that's, that's still true. But then it's even more depressing than that, because as we saw with the uh, capture of El Chapo's son, the government bribed the cartel members to stop the violence. So it's even worse than them bribing the government. The government now has to bribe cartel members to basically stop their violent rampage and destroying cities. I mean, I can't yeah. even think about anything more sinister or depressing than that and and you're talking about there is no it's it's hard to you know i'm not a pessimistic person but you know it's hard to find any solution when you're in that kind of situation and then on top of that you also have these cartels who have diversified portfolios into things like you know the owning the avocado industry right and owning legitimate entities then you have their children who live here and some of these children are professionals in their own right right there's there's bound to be many of them um, who's, you know, daddy or uncle were, were cartel money. And then they, you know, sent the kids to good schools over here. So the, the sort of interconnectedness is just unbelievable. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. And we can never eradicate that. And what do we see happening right now on our Southwestern border? We see, uh, in, uh, as far as I, I'm concerned, an unprecedented wave of uh, humanity Absolutely. are making entry. And they're not trying to avoid border patrol. They're surrendering to the border patrol mm -hmm. because our government's policy is, if you come and you surrender, all you got to do is declare yourself a refugee, say right. you want asylum, and basically it's, we're going to let you in. Mm -hmm. And the cartels are not only making money moving humans, human smuggling, they're also making money through human trafficking, which is different, right. but related. Right. And at the same time, with this deluge of people coming across, does the Border Patrol have an opportunity to catch loads of dope coming across. No, they're all not. dealing with mm -hmm. massive amounts of humanity uh, on the uh, southwestern border. They can't stop the loads of dope. It's a complete win-win for 
for the cartels in Mexico, which means they're making more money, which means they're going to be even stronger. And it is a problem that, in my opinion, and I would, I'm not advocating it, but short of in Invading Mexico, militarily eradicating all the cartels, right. um, and the Mexicans won't appreciate it, by the way, if we did that, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think we should, but short of that, we're not solving the problem, and at right. the same time, because of our current government policy of letting anybody in who wants to come in, it's just make, it's just helping them and making things worse. Of course. And, and, and you know, it's, 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 it's bizarre, but true, and uh, we... We don't even have to talk about the uh, social issues regarding American society being inundated by, you know, hundreds of thousands of Latin Americans each month trying to get in. And by the way, a lot of people from all over the world mm-hmm. inside the other countries. Yeah, that's right. Other countries. And um, no, one, 100 and, you know, nationals. We don't have to talk about that. We, right. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm sorry. Yeah. Nationals from 100 different countries have come in this last basically year, which is insane. That's just what we know yeah. of. Right. That's right. What we know of. And uh, and so, you know, we're, we're just the cartels growing in profit and strength. Uh, Mexico is a problem for us that, uh, you know, that will be a problem for us in the future because they'll just, you know, move more dope. Uh, as you say, they're diversifying their portfolios into legitimate businesses, which which will provide them with, you know, means to make legitimate profit. Um, you know, it's the California in, in your state. Right now, you have the cartels, California, oh, we're going to have a legal domestic marijuana industry. Who controls that now, Ashton? Who controls that? Is it some hippie up in Marin County who's growing dope out in the, mm-hmm. out in the middle of a forest? Well, he still exists, but who's he working for? You know, now you do have a few honest ones, but uh, some people, again, they get the same deal, plomo or plata, letter silver, and uh, the, the domestic marijuana industry in California is now owned by, you know, essentially by the Mexican drug trafficking cartels. You know, meth used to be the province of uh, toothless rednecks in the United States. Mm-hmm. And now the biggest producer of methamphetamine is Mexico. Mm-hmm. And where does it go? Into the United States. Right, right. You know, rather than some third grade dropout who manages not to blow himself up while cooking meth, you know, in a, in a single wide trailer out in the middle of nowhere. Now it's a corporate operation in Mexico mm-hmm. with, uh, with just a massive distro network in the United States. We're not going to solve this problem. It, it's it's here to stay. Draw, draw for me the connection. So one of the things I was going to ask you about is what would – you often hear of, of one solution being to legal or decriminalize drugs. Um, I, I don't see how that would solve it, but people think this – people seem to believe that if you were to decriminalize them or make them legal, then you know regular participants can counteract the sort of black market – that uh, doesn't seem to have worked ter- terribly well with the marijuana industry. Can you draw for me the connection between what you just said about how the cartel still controls the marijuana industry? Because I'm, I'm unfamiliar with that. Yeah. Most Americans, when they think of a domestic legal marijuana industry, they think of the shop in California, right. Colorado, where mm-hmm. you can go buy a certain quantity of marijuana legally. Mm-hmm. You can get a prescription from a doctor. And go in and buy medical marijuana. Right. You have the CBD oils and the, 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 the THC edibles, all of these things. Most Americans, when you talk about legalizing marijuana and having a domestic marijuana industry, the image in their head is of those shops. What they don't think about is where does the product come from? It's an agricultural product. 
It has to be planted. It has to be tended to. It has to be harvested. It has to be processed for distribution. And much of the marijuana grows, I think the majority today, uh, much of the marijuana grows in, in California are owned by the Mexican cartels. They don't own the shop you right, know, right. that says medical marijuana up front, CBD oil, you know, edibles. They don't, they don't own that. They own the production mm-hmm. of the product necessary for all those end user consumer items. And, and, and it's, it's a big disconnect in how Americans think. Right, right. And also legalizing drugs. I mean, my gosh, it's a big deal in this. Drunk driving is a big deal in this country, right? Mad, the Mothers Against Drunk Driving was a major political force in the, uh, in the 1990s, late 80s into the 90s. So, I mean, that's a legal drug. I'm not suggesting we make it illegal. We tried that and failed. Uh, and hey, like I said, I'm Irish. But um, you legalize drugs. Well, who's going to start getting into that market as much as they can? If at least nothing else to undercut in the black market, undercut the market price. I mean, the cartels are not amateurs. You want to talk about the ultimate capitalists. They have managed to satisfy the market desires of people who want to use banned or controlled substances by creating not only a manu- an agriculture and manufacturing network, but a transportation, an international transportation and, and sales distribution network. And they're making money hands over fist. We're not talking about people who are dumb. We're not talking about people who are stupid. We're talking about extremely intelligent individuals who are in it for making money. And they just happen to also be ruthless and very Mm -hmm. violent. We tend to think that ruthless and violent people somehow are not smart. But you can be all of those things. Absolutely. Ruthless, violent, bloodthirsty, and also very smart and capable. And the cartels are. So all we'll do is facilitate... Um, their entry into uh, whatever drug market exists because of legalization, my opinion. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. They're like a uh, evil Amazon in a sense, right? I mean, completely vertically integrated. Great, great, great way to put it. Yeah. Let's let's talk about yeah, something more uplifting then. With respect to your uh, experience with the WMD units, can you tell me a little bit about your background in there? And then I want to ask you a few questions. Yeah, after an initial headquarters assignment in the counterintelligence division of the FBI, I was uh, uh, working the East, a certain East Asian country, working against a certain East Asian country. I was then transferred to the uh, WMD counterproliferation unit, and, uh, and that unit focused on nation state WMD. And uh, primary targets were Iran, North Korea, um, you know, pr- primarily those uh, in Pakistan, but but every other country on planet Earth. But but you know the the ones who are you know Pakistan has nuclear weapons, Luke, right. mm-hmm. but um, their means of uh, being able to employ them quickly is uh, quite deficient, mm-hmm. and always want to make themselves more capable of using them rapidly. And then of course Iran and North Korea ought to speak for themselves for anybody watching or listening as to why they're dangerous. So in that unit, we focused on, you know, threat countries, and, um, and I was sent to the Defense Nuclear Weapons School and a bunch of other training courses to bring myself up to speed um, in regards to nation-state WMD. It was chemical, biological, nuclear primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, dirty bomb stuff, stuff is not really what we were working on. That's more of a terrorist or criminal tool. Um, 
uh, all the ways at WMD, we were working on ICBM programs, nuclear weapons programs, um, nation state chem bio programs. So I was eventually the acting unit chief of the WMD counterproliferation unit before being assigned to uh, Central Intelligence Agency headquarters for, for two years as the uh, senior FBI representative for WMD counterproliferation. What's the most overblown threat and the most underblown threat from a, both from a geopolitical perspective in terms of what can happen around the world that would disrupt everything, disrupt our economy, disrupt our way of life, and f- from a U.S. sort of Western perspective? I don't know if there's any overblown threat. Um, okay. Well, yeah, there is an overblown threat. Um uh, and I'll talk about an underblown threat if I can think of one. An overblown threat is the specter of a terrorist carrying a suitcase that contained a nuclear device in it. Mm-hmm. The uh, the you know lone actor who right. somehow it's a suitcase bomb into an American city. That is a uh, a low probability event. It's not impossible. But it is improbable, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it. I I can't say, you know, I'm still bound by the classification rules, right. so I can't describe nuclear devices. But mm-hmm. I will just leave it at it's not impossible, but right. it is improbable. Right, and there's so many uh, variables involved in that. Is is what yeah. what you're getting at in terms of being able to to acquire it and then store it and then transport. I mean, I, I've read a, I've read a, a bit about it and. It's uh, it's extremely difficult. Um, just all the all the variables involved, uh, and all the sort of expertise you need in different sort of subject areas. So that that makes sense. And so that's overblown. I'm not sure there's an underblown mm-hmm. threat. Um, well, see again, you have a certain perspective and you look at it. That's no, not. I think today, and because our media coverage is so is so slanted towards one certain worldview, at Mm -hmm. least in my opinion it is, at least our national news media is, that the Iranian threat might be underblown. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe that Iran is very close. Now, these are in relative terms. I don't mean next week, but within a couple of years of having a functioning nuclear device. And regardless of uh, the Obama-Iran deal, regardless of, of uh, you know, the Trump administration um, not, not uh, complying with that deal, uh, the Iranians have always had their eyes on, on obtaining a nuclear capabil- capability. And they're not, you know, there, there's no treaty or agreement. Uh, the Obama agreement was not a treaty, it was an agreement. There's no agreement or treaty that's going to keep them from acquiring nuclear weapons. It's it's been on their wish list for a very long time now, and they will eventually do that. Yeah. Now, obviously, our nation and and particularly Israel are working diligently against that that uh, process in Iran. Will they be ultimate? Will we be ultimately successful? Um, uh, and I say obviously because it's been in the news. You know, right, you, right, right. you talk about you know, malware being inserted in Iranian programs. And I'll just let the news stories on that speak for themselves. I'm not mm-hmm. speaking from, from any, any current personal knowledge at all, but just those things. So we can kind of see what's happening when you look at, you know, geopolitical news anyway. 
But um, so you're saying you can't trust the Iranian mullahs who have killed tens of thousands of their own people to abide by an agreement? Is that is that your contention? No, you okay. can't trust them at all. And uh, <laughs> and so I, I think that I think that that is underblown in our media because um, you know we want to applaud um, President Obama for making the agreement, we want to trash President Trump for uh, deciding not to comply with the agreement, mm-hmm. want to applaud. Uh, Joe Biden for for uh, considering you know complete U.S. compliance to that agreement. I don't think he's made that decision yet. Want to applaud these things, and there is a uh, narrative out there that the agreement would have kept the Iranian the Obama agreement right, would right. have kept the Iranians from building nuclear weapons. Yeah. Well, I mean that's 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 fantasy. It's absolutely in it's my absolute opinion. joke. No, yeah, I mean it's absolutely joke. Factually speaking, absolute joke. We we already uh, the Israelis already uncovered information years ago that they were cheating the entire time. The the agreement basically. To the extent was agreement was, um, you know, oh yeah, you can you can monitor these facilities, but not these ones. So where, where are you going to put it, right? And of course, it's in their complete self interest to do it because they saw what happened with Qaddafi, they saw what happened to Saddam, they saw what happened to the the other uh, Middle Eastern despots, and your assurance in terms of trying to um, stave off regime change from outside forces, while you kill your own people, massacre them. My mom obviously was a uh, is a refugee from that country. Uh, is to have a nuclear bomb, so then people will be like, okay, you know, Iran may be evil and all that, but they have a nuke, so there's not there's not much we can do, and so it's completely in their interest uh, to do it. And yeah, exactly, nothing will stop them from doing it because their own people want to overthrow them, and the only thing that would absolutely ensure that no momentum can be built from that by other Western or world powers joining their own people to overthrow them is to have a nuclear bomb because then the calculus changes and it's like, okay, can we be on these you know, can, should we be facilitating this? Cause this could lead to a nuclear explosion somewhere. So yeah, I mean, what you say is completely, uh, completely correct. And it's, uh, you know, there's been so much of the uh, Russia, Russia coverage. And of course, I think Russia is a geopolitical foe. They always have their hand in everything. Um, yeah. And it's in their interest, you know, to, to basically stir the pot constantly because the United States being distracted ensures that they're able to, meet their, you know, Putin's strategic objectives, and no one will stand in their way. Um, but, you know, yeah, it, it's all the all the Russia coverage, <laughs> the last few years, uh, at the expense of, of thinking about some of these other issues is, is really damaging. I, I want to yeah. sort of segue that with with the whole FBI. The say recent FBI history, so you, you're obviously, you know, veteran there, it's spent decades there. The so there was an interesting poll was a couple months ago that the FBI is viewed favorably by 78% of Democrats and 55% of Republican voters, which is unbelievable. That's, that's a complete role reversal. It's a 23-point gap, whereas you know, I'm, I'm born in the 90s. I'm old enough to remember when uh, you know, all, the, all my left-wing friends were the you know, fuck-the-system kind of people, right? They were absolutely against the FBI and the CIA and and any semblance of um, what they would consider imperialistic United States and and uh, the security apparatus that's built upon um, obviously a huge role reversal not much of it is well actually pretty all of it is due to the fact that the contentious relationship that resulted from Trump and the FBI where the FBI individuals in the FBI like this uh, Kevin, Kleinsmith, who was just charged, altering emails 
in order to get FISA warrants with false information and the sealed dossier, which was complete bullshit, in order to spy on Carter Page and essentially spy on the Trump administration. And so a lot of people on the right, which is why you had this decrease in support, think that the FBI has become overly politicized and is no longer a impartial you know, gilded entity that it once was. What do you, how, how do you perceive that as someone who was in, he was in the force for 20 years. Now you're, now you're out of your private citizen. What, what do you make of sort of the leadership ranks and, and your whole opinion on that? Well, I think it's a logical reaction to, uh, to the, you know, uh, crossfire hurricane or the Trump Russia investigation that went on. Uh, it's logical to, to believe that the uh, FBI is not as credible as it once was. Um, I can tell you as a retiree, that when I retired, it was like, ooh, you were an FBI agent? Now it's like, oh, you were an FBI mm-hmm. agent. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, uh, it's changed dramatically. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the whole case, uh, uh, the Russia investigation, it really was about eight or nine people who were in key positions who caused it to happen. You know, there's 13,500 FBI special agents mm-hmm. or another 22,000, I think, support employees. Uh, the whole FBI uh, has been tarnished by about eight or nine people. Mm-hmm. And uh, their, their uh, apparent partisan um, point of view in, 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 in shepherding this investigation forward. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a good, <laughs> it certainly wasn't good for the Bureau's reputation. It's going to be very difficult to repair that in the minds of the American people. And uh, but but the, the good side of the story is, again, we're talking about eight or nine people, mm-hmm. not 800, 800 or 900 people, eight or nine people, starting with, you know, Andrew McCabe as the deputy director and then right. the other personalities who who make up that story. And, um, you know, I can't get into their hearts and minds, but if you if you just take what's at face value like uh, Peter Strzok, who uh, I, I have worked with personally on one occasion, um, and, and, and Lisa uh, Page, his uh, girlfriend, who worked in the general, FBI general counsel's office, uh, you know, their text messages back and forth you know, about not letting uh, Trump win the presidency. Mm-hmm. You know, we won't. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that is not, that's not the province of the bureau to decide who right. gets elected or not, and it seemed like they tried to derail the campaign. And the fact that uh, an affidavit was taken to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court when it was known, at least by the time of the second renewal, uh, that the information that was was used as probable cause predicate, mm-hmm. namely the Steele dossier, right. was was all a partisan hack job piece. Uh, and it con- and it continued to push that FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act surveillance package through the through the DOJ and through the uh, to the court uh, is is really uh, to me uh, that's a dereliction of duty, uh, all capital letters. Right. And I do think that this is one thing about being in the FBI. And it's a very tangential remark, but you always see a headline: FBI screws up, fill in the blank, whatever it was at the FBI. Now, how many times have you ever? seen a headline that says United States Attorney's Office screws screws up, fill in the blank, is how. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you never do. Most Americans don't even know what a United States Attorney right. is. Right, yeah. Um, you know, that's the, that is the federal district attorney. There are 94 of them around the country. Right. Presidential nominee, confirmed by the Senate. 
um, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, which is works for the Justice Department, has tremendous control over what the FBI does once legal process is implicated. In other words, when a grand jury or a court becomes involved. So a lot of the headlines that you read, FBI screws up, fill in the blank of the screw up, was really the Department of Justice. Hmm. But newspaper reporters and TV reporters knows that nobody knows what a United States attorney is, but everybody knows what the FBI is. Right. So there's an element of that in the press coverage and your you know, FBI screws again. Often having been there, uh, I can tell you that it was a decision that, that either Maine Justice made or the U.S. Attorney's Office made. So in the case of the FISA court, you have, uh, you have uh, the National Security Division of the Department of Justice handles cases that go to that court. So that the, the uh, affidavits, which are called declarations in, under the FISA, um, have to go to DOJ, which they approve them too. So um, there's, there's a, lot to, a lot of blame to go around in terms of those actual uh, affidavits getting in applications for, for FISA surveillance getting to the court. So um, it's not just the FBI, but in the FBI, again, it's about nine people, but they were in key, key positions. And uh, like I said, it's logical that Americans would, you know, have less trust in the FBI. Um, but I think that poll also shows that as a population, we're very divided along, uh, you know, political lines as, as, a, as a population. Um, if 78% of Democrats think the FBI is credible and 55% of Republicans or, or if you want to be leftists and rightists and you know, right. liberals, conservatives, um, you would want it to be maybe more even, uh, and it's not. Yeah, but it is a logical conclusion. Yeah, no, it's um, it is it is troubling. It, it goes with sort of general trend of institution by institution, sort of being less trusted, yes. and by the American people. And for some, it's for you know some institutions are more distrusted by people on the right now, some by the left, some by both. Right. And so that that's when you get into some real trouble when there's no fabric sort of binding people together. There's no there's no belief that the people who have the power in your country are actually pursuing your best interests or good motives. And so that that's why even, as you said, with, you know, few people in key, very powerful positions can tarnish the entire agency and um it's very troubling what do you what do you make of there seems to be a new focus now on what they christopher ray said this uh, on combating domestic terrorism that's at least that seems to be the lines that the media keeps drumming on about white supremacists are everywhere domestic terrorists are everywhere i I calculated i I saw about uh, something like 50 casualties in the last decade from what you could consider white supremacists uh, as opposed to there's like 16,000 homicides a year in the United States, and we're talking about 50 over a decade. Do you think that this is – what do you make of it? Do you think that it's just it's just a media sort of overplaying this narrative in order to uh, you know, coalesce around their other narrative that America's racist and you know, it's an unsafe place? And, or do you think that things have changed with certain members in the agency that they are – going to fulfill these political ob- objectives just like how we see with for example you know corollary would be like you know nike pretending to be about uh, social justice while they you know employ slave labor in china right 
So do, right. you, do you do you see that angle of it, or do you or do you think that you know? Well, this is what the FBI has always kind of done, and there's not really a change. Uh, what what's your what's your thoughts on that as someone who's not no longer in it, looking looking in from the outside? Well, I think the the white supremacist threat is overblown. I think it's a it's a media um, overblow of of a threat. The um, you know that's that's the current that's the current thing right now in the uh, in the narrative here coming out of our our news media or academic institutions, entertainment media personalities. And things like that. You just, you know, your statistic was great. You know, there may be 50 people murdered as a result of some act by a white supremacist to further white supremacy um, versus how many people are, you know, otherwise criminally murdered in this country. And and I'll just throw this out there, and it's, you know, not because I'm a white guy, but uh, no white supremacist that I'm aware of has ever flown, you know, airplanes into any buildings. All right. But uh, so I think it's overblown. Um, you know, Director Ray, who I don't know, don't know. I mean, I, I don't know him, never heard of him before he was nominated to be director, don't know anything about him, you know, but he does have to answer these questions when members of Congress, um, you know, pose those to right. him. And he's, he's going to answer, not tell them what they want to hear, but try to give a sufficient answer uh, to their concerns about white supremacy. But, but it, it, I mean, my gosh, you go back to the 1960s when the FBI worked against the Klan mm -hmm. and the Deep South. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's like it's nothing new. And and I I have uh, I'm not sure I've ever actually met a a white supremacist. I haven't. No. You know, I I, I haven't. And I, I stand have, out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I think they were fighting. Yeah. Well, my wife is Mexican American, yeah. so that my kids are Mexican American. Um, they're very dark complected, especially in the summer. You know, but. I haven't seen a white supremacist, you know, um, uh, when my family and I are out, you know, um, anything like that. I have in my past met uh, people who used to be uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan, but the thing about the Klan is, you know, and I'm not trying to be facetious, it's really the truth is that most of your real Klan members, you know, their leaders may have something going for them and that's why they rise to the top. And, and I'm not trying to malign anybody, but I'll malign the clan. Most of your rank and file clan members, you know, um, work part time at a gas station and live in a 50 right. or 60 year old single wide trailer in the middle of nowhere. Right. I mean, that, that, that's not that much of a threat. Right. They have no um, connection to any power center in the United States in any industry. No. Literally none. Right. No. But right. but if you look at the Southern Poverty Law Center's mm -hmm. website, yeah. Plan members everywhere, right, 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 and uh, and they're simply not. I think that's an overblown threat. But you know, uh, uh, any kind of um, active political violence by a domestic group is domestic terrorism, and, and the FBI will will work those cases. Um, I would just submit to to the audience for consideration that um, that the white supremacist threat is quite overblown by um, our news media our entertainment media personalities, academic industry. Right. And, and you the notice how, sorry, I was going to say, and you notice how quiet they went when the recent, and I did a, I did a whole podcast on it, the, the recent rise in anti-Semitism, um, particularly which which uh, happened at the same time as the latest conflict between Israel and Gaza, were all Middle Eastern and Arab and Muslim people who were 
radicals, radical activists who were you know, of that demographic profile who were Palestinian activists who were attacking Jews, right? And that's that's the sort of, you know, Jews are traditionally the the ultimate enemy of the white supremacist because uh, they, they credit them Jews with controlling everything. Um, the growing up, you know, been to 30, 40 states, growing up as, as someone in, in California with comes from religious background, Jewish, the, the only acts of anti-Semitism I've ever been subject to or my family's ever been subject to, which is what caused my family to leave Europe and the Middle East, were by people who were, you know, Arabs who hate Jews because you look at any Pew Research Bowl, the the level of anti-Semitic opinions, uh, you know, you're looking 70, 80 percent of some of the countries, some of these populations centers have legitimately anti-Semitic opinions. Right. But they never talk about that. And, that, and, and, and we saw. We saw all these sort of hate crimes recently uh, from people who were, as they call, brown against Jews, right? So um, it's it's a very it's a very good point you make. Uh, you know, are there white supremacists out there? Of course, just mm-hmm. like there's you know there's there's haters of every of every race. Do they have a scintilla of power in any in the society in any institution? Right? They're as you said, mostly you know people who. Uh, live in trailers and things of that nature, right? They're not exactly your uh, people who are in positions of power. Um, I, I want to, actually on a tangent of that, right now one of the biggest stories is what's going on in Afghanistan with mm-hmm. the, our withdrawal and obviously the Taliban taking more and more territory by the day. Um, you know, a lot of people suspect they may, you know, who knows, overrun the entire country and, and overthrow Kabul. You were in the WMD units you served in that capacity, analyzing sort of national security threats. What do you make of, first of all, maybe they, what's going on in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and sort of what America's role will be going forward? Because it seems like on both sides, we're so tired of intervening. We want to be more isolationist. Do you agree with that? And do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? I don't, I don't think that uh, America is on its way to isolation, being an isolationist nation. In relative we have terms, too, right, yeah. Well, right. But, but well, then it would depend on what your scale is, because we have so many national interests all over the globe, it would be difficult to, uh, to not pay attention to them and be isolationist. But I think in, in 20 years of, of effort in Afghanistan, why is the Taliban moving so fast? Why are so many cities falling? Why are so many provinces under the control of the Taliban now? Can't the Afghans, after all of the help that we've given them, the training, the equipment, all of the money we've spent there, and I'm not even talking, I mean, how many American, uh, how much American blood has been shed, right. American lives, American limbs right. lost uh, there, and, and the Afghans are letting the Taliban take mm-hmm. over. They're letting it happen. We cannot impose our Jeffersonian sensibilities on uh, you know a, a people who don't want on it, and it is apparent to me that what the, the Afghans really want is Taliban rule, because the Taliban didn't create an army out of nowhere. All of the Taliban fighters, where were they? Were they all hiding in the mountains? Were they all in, in camps over the border in Iran? Where were they? They, they didn't just materialize out of thin air. They weren't beamed down from an orbiting Taliban starship to, to fight. They had to be people who were laying low and rose up when American and allied forces left and began taking over. And, you know, 
um, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Well, we've tried to help the Afghans and they don't want that. They didn't want to take up for themselves to the degree that they're not going to allow the country to be taken over by the Taliban. We can't, as Americans, do everything for everyone else. They've got to want and not be under Taliban rule. Well, apparently, enough of them are voting by breaking out the AK-47 from, you know, whatever hole it's been buried in and going on the offensive. And what have we, what have we accomplished there? 20 years of military and diplomatic involvement in Afghanistan for what? Mm -hmm. And I want to say something about the fallacy of sunk costs. I hear this occasionally from people. Well, we've lost almost 3,000 troops there. We can't pull out now. Well, what, when are we going to win? When is it going to be victorious? You know, it, because we've lost that many people, does that mean we have to lose more? You know, we got almost 3,000 killed, 20,000 wounded, Many of those wounded have limbs that are missing, eyeballs that are missing, faces blown off. I mean, how much more do we have to invest in American blood? Not to mention trillions of dollars in American treasure. And what if we gain from it? And let me make another point, a tangent from that tangent. People say, we still have troops in Germany. We still have troops in Japan. Yeah, because it's Germany and Japan. You know, it's not Afghanistan or any other country in Central Asia or the Middle East. The Germans and the Japanese were completely defeated. And we occupied those nations and rebuilt them. And they're friends, they're allies today. That's why we have troops there, because they're our allies. To say that we have troops in, in South Korea, the same story. Right, right. To say that we have troops in, mm -hmm. in, in Germany and South Korea and Japan... Uh, since World War II and the Korean War, respectively, then we can keep troops in Afghanistan. The three countries where we have troops that I just mentioned are allies. They want us there. The Afghans don't want us there. We can't occupy it. Can't occupy it forever. And why is it the job of the United States of America to police every corner of the globe? And I think this goes back, frankly, to the Bush administration in, in Iraq. I mean, with 2020 hindsight, again, this is a comment based on 2020 hindsight. Do we really need to invade Iraq? I don't think so, you know, and, and I think that's going to go down in history as one of the biggest geopolitical blunders of, of the United States in, in the first half of the 21st century. We can talk about why I think that if you want or not, but I think it's going to go down in history as a giant geopolitical blunder. As far as Afghanistan goes, you know, what price do we pay? What price do we pay so that we can make sure that the Afghans aren't ruled by the Taliban. In this case, we've done enough. The Afghans, I think the situation speaks for itself, and it's going to be taken over by the Taliban, and it's going to be ruled by the Taliban, and it's going to be horrible for the people there who don't want to be part of the Taliban. But you know what? There's a lot of horrible places and a lot of horrible people and a lot of horrible things all over the world. And we earlier spoke about Mexico and the Mexican cartels, and the military insurgency that goes on there between the cartels and the government. And not to mention the fact that a year ago, it was either 2020 or maybe 2019, 26,500 people were murdered in Mexico, which does not approach the population of the United States. It's a more dangerous country to be in Iraq. So, you know, and we're not doing a damn thing about right, that. In fact, right, we're absolutely. letting floods of people over. But people want to do a damn thing about Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. After 20 years of American involvement, it is a failed boat. 
We have failed in Afghanistan. I never quite understood what the end once we defeated the Taliban after 9-11, I mean, a couple of months, Taliban right. defeated. Well, we, 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 were going to, uh, we were going to make Afghanistan to Switzerland. So, so you don't think that's possible? Well, I don't think that that's possible. Having been to Switzerland, I've never been to Afghanistan. I've been to Saudi Arabia. I've been kind of close, but I have been to Switzerland. And just looking at the National Geographic issues about Afghanistan, I don't think it's going to turn into Switzerland in any, so uh, anytime soon. But, you know, it's, it's like imposing democracy. And I don't, I don't want to mix these two things too closely, but, you know, temporally, they're, they're pretty close together. But, um, you know, creating a democracy in Iraq, in a country that's, that's never had one. Right. You know, democracy has to grow organically. Absolutely. But anyway, back to Afghanistan. You know, what the hell? Let it fall. Do we have to pin on the world policeman badge all the time and go sally forth with, with bodies and equipment and money? To, to cause change in places where it's never going to change. And, and for the audiences who don't know the history, you know, right. what about the British occupation of Afghanistan? Gee, did that go well? No, the British were run out of Afghanistan. Shall we talk about the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. its invasion and occupation of Afghanistan? Right. Was that successful? No. Was the American effort there successful? No. Chalk it up to a lesson learned and good goddamn risen, riddance to Afghanistan. And, you know, and just set it aside because we're not going to do anything to change the situation on the ground. Absolutely. And with the examples you just gave, with the exception of the Soviet Union one, that was before radical Islam took over the country as well. So it's not not only not only do you have all those those prior challenges in terms of demography and geography and just um, the sort of difficulty of implementing culture, but you also have radical Islam there. Right, which which is a feature of basically the last I don't know, maybe fifty something years in terms of its 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 ubiquity in that region. Uh, you know, there was at once a point where uh, they, you know, around the sixties and seventies, where they, they looked like they were having some progress, but then that that went away just like it did in my mom's home country uh, when Iraq was honest took it over. So um, absolutely, and I, there's a few things you said there, so I want to sort of tie together. This idea that we have to, first of all, you cannot, democracy is premised on other things. It's not just something out of the blue. There has to be a culture underpinning it. There has to be a culture of, of representative rights and theories on how people need to live their lives and the separation between church and states and all, all these sorts of Judeo-Christian philosophies that underpin and the, the ancient Greek traditions that underpinned these theories that were then put together and then implemented and then over a course of several hundred years became what they are today in Western Europe and the United States. It's not like you just flip a switch, uh, particularly from people who are of vastly different cultures. And who's to say who's to say that democracy is the app is is the way to go right now, at least in various parts of the world, right? I mean Singapore, um, I would never want what they have in terms of their government control of things. Uh, but you know, if you ask a lot of Singaporeans, it works out pretty well for them. Could Saudi Arabia be a democracy? I don't think so. Not right now. You know, um, I, I, if you were to get rid of the royal family in Saudi Arabia, you would probably have Afghanistan. You wouldn't have Switzerland. You know, um, and then this idea that we have to police the world and that it's never it's it's a, it's a very neoliberal or neoconservative as well patriarchal position that we can just 
you know, oh, we know better for you guys. We can just implement it there. Whereas it never comes to why aren't the people in their country fighting for it if this is what they want, right? How does it benefit, right. you know? And we have this problem with immigration as well, you know, like with like uh, you said, 25% of the Mexican people of uh, Mexican descent live in the United States. El Salvador has like one third of their population here. And no one ever asked, well, how is that helping El Salvador to have one third of the population here, mostly men, the guys who are expected to fight for their country against the the MS-13s and those people of the world? So, right. yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just really, and it, and it goes to show you this Overton window that's sort of been enforced by the media in the United States and what we can talk about, what we can't talk about, what perspectives we can have. Um, it really, it really sort of shatters me when you look at it from all these different perspectives. So, is so my, my final question to you would be: um, <laughs> Is there anything? Is there anything you're, you're hopeful for this say this coming decade in the United States or or around the world? Well, I'm not hopeless, Ashton, um, but I'm very concerned. You know, I, I'm not a professional historian. But I've read, if I've read one book of history, uh, I read a thousand of them. And what it's taught me is that every century uh, is full of bad things. Um, We had two world wars in the last century, right? We had the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 through 1920. We had a, a global Great Depression with the big crash in 1929. And it was a global depression. We Americans think that it was just in our country. Right. It was a global depression. Yes. And I tell my kids, I said, you know, in your lifetime, three things are going to happen. It's going to be a global pandemic, a global Great Depression, and a global war. And I said, and, and recently, I said, you're living through the global pandemic right now. So the question is, when are those other two things going to happen? And will you survive them? Who knows? I don't try to, you know, scare them. But uh, we, I don't know how much time we have left. because. Oh, you no, kind of got me on a soapbox. And I don't mean to be on a soapbox, but you kind of got me. Mm-hmm. But we live in a country in which many of our countrymen could not find Canada on a map if you spotted them North America. We live in a country in which you have middle class and upper middle class white kids protesting in these Antifa protests, wearing $250 sneakers, carrying a $1,000 smartphone, wearing $100 blue jeans, decrying the evils of capitalism because they don't know where all that stuff comes from. You know, and so the, the, the cognitive dissonance is huge in this country. And we see the news media industry, the entertainment industry, and the academic industry are the wholly owned subsidiaries of the American left. Not classical liberals, right. but the American left. Not even classical labor, right? Because that, that was one no, thing not, we could sympathize with. Right. Where, where, right. That, that's true. And there was, I don't, citing polls that you remember reading about, but don't remember exactly is fraught with danger. But there was a poll I read an article about some years ago that uh, something like 80 some odd percent of all humanities professors in the United States consider themselves Marxists. I mean, that went how? Yeah, I mean, ha- haven't we sounds had unbelievable. Enough that examples of the failures of Marxism around the world. Hasn't the ones. real communism hasn't been tried yet? I know it's always that we can do it right. <laughs> That's what we did in Iraq when we right. invaded. We can do it right. Right, right, right. It's not going to be like Vietnam. We can do it right. Well, uh, 
anyway, getting back to the main point, is that is that I'm not sure our society is capable. In fact, there's quite the lack of resilience. You have at you know Brown University, you had two women. This is about three, four years ago, maybe five years ago now. Two women debating whether uh, um, uh, a campus rape rape culture existed. Two women, one saying no, one saying yes, at Brown University, and they had a safe room where kids, kids, see, supposedly adults under mm-hmm. the law, mm-hmm. um, would go and they just can't stand it anymore. They could go to the safe room where they had crayons and coloring books and mm-hmm. stuffed animals and ice cream. I mean, come on. That's what you do for a kindergartner, not somebody who's over the age of 18, but we've, we, have, we have enabled um, the softness in our society uh, that, that is, is, I think is unprecedented in, in human history especially in the West and, and particularly in, in the United States. So I don't know if there's the built-in resilience. Do you think that the Gen Z and the late, the late millennial generation, do you think that they could do what their forefathers did during the Great Depression and in World War II? Yeah, well, I, I don't know what to answer that. I don't know. Is it yeah. yes? Is it no? Is it, well, we'll have to wait and see. So you're saying you're the, say- the purple-haired liberal arts degree majors from Berkeley couldn't build Empire State Building. Is that... Is that what you're getting at here? I would have, I, I would think they would not mesh well with the steelworker crowd. Yeah. Uh, and, and construction industry. And also, math is racist yes, as well these nothing days. Else. Right. Yes. Um, two plus two is no longer four. Mm-hmm. And if we say it is, it's, it's patriarchy and white supremacy. And, and so, with all of this stuff that's royal in our society, where do we come out in 10 years? I don't know the answer to that. And another thing is, I got an 18 year old who's about to go to college and a 16 year old. Their impression of news is seeing something on Twitter or Snapchat. So that means any jackass can make a video or post something on, on Snapchat or post something on Twitter and express their opinion. And they look at it and think that that's, for some reason, they think that that's news. It's just some jackass posting his or her opinion. It's not, you know, it's, there's no credibility behind it. Um, no questions asked about it. It's just assumed. Well, that's information. So therefore, it's news. It could be a complete lie. Um, but they don't know, and they don't know to ask, and that's that's very problematic to me uh, about where our society goes. Because if you if they lack the ability to, and I know they're still young, but if they lack if they go to a university and they're and they're propounded this worldview, you know, at what point are they can they independently analyze what they see and hear and understand right. around them? I, I don't know. Um, so I'm not hopeless, but am I hopeful? Um, n- n- no. Uh, I'm I'm in a wait and see mode, and and uh, and I, I don't you know mean to seem to be overly pessimistic, but somebody has to give me some examples of uh, uh, where we're going to go. Most people can't. Most people you know talk about uh, the, the stimulus checks and the fact the Fed's printing money hand over fist. They can't explain to you why that's bad because to them, well you know the government prints the money. Mm-hmm. They can print all they want. Mm-hmm. Well, but that, that's not how it works in the end. The piper will be paid. What's going to happen then? You know, what's going to happen? China has its own internet. So does Russia. They can disconnect from the World Wide Web. Both of them can. What if China disconnects and then sends out a massive burst of malware that shuts down the internet around the world in the United States? What are we going to do then? It's more than just not being able to get on the internet. You got a credit card, you go to the gas pump, you put that credit card in that pump, you put gas in your car. How do you think that card is talking to the bank through the internet? You know, you want to get money out of the ATM? Well, good luck. There ain't no internet. That, that card's talking to the bank to get that money out. 
over the internet. Same thing, buying stuff with a debit card at the stores. We also live in an economy in which we have on-demand resupply. Every time you go shopping and that barcode, that item with the barcode is scanned, what it's doing is doing an electronic inventory. The store knows that they have, say, a thousand widgets. And so each time they sell one, it goes down. And then when they sell the 600, and now they're down to 400, it triggers a message sent to the company that supplies those things, order X number or more, you know? And so how does that happen? Well, over the internet, um, you have FedEx drivers driving around with GPS, right? So that they can schedule and the FedEx knows when a particular package is gonna be delivered. How? Because it's connected via the internet, you know? Uh, satellites, well, yeah, where do the satellites communicate with stuff on the ground? Over the internet. How, how does uh, the cell towers, you know, communicate? Well, fundamentally over cable buried into the ground. Not, it's not a, you know, this, my smartphone here is not, is not an international shortwave radio. So it hits the cell site and that message is going through a cable to another cell site. So can you imagine the social dislocation if the internet went down for three days? Holy smokes, can our society survive it? I don't know. We had to run on toilet paper when the pandemic hit. What kind of behavior are we going to see in the streets of America and in the West where we're fat, dumb, and happy? And frankly, with our noses constantly looking at these stupid things, unaware of what's going on around us. And Americans, like I said before, I mean, we're quite, as a people, unaware of the greater world that exists. I mean, I don't know, you've right. been to, I don't know how many countries you've been to. I've been to, I don't know, 15, 20 countries. Um, um, mo half of those on uh, government service. Uh, so, you know, you got to see what's out there and it's not all wine and roses. Mm -hmm. So where are we going to be in 10 years? I don't know, man. I don't know. I'll remain and wait and see. But. <laughs> well, look, I, I, uh, I agree with almost everything you said. The challenges are immense. Um, I, I have a couple aspects that make me hopeful, which are I think a lot of people in my generation and younger, yes, there is a, many have been victimized by propaganda, a specific worldview pushed down their throats by various media institutions. I do also see a lot of belief and a lot of skepticism towards Towards more things, I think, than than was true before. And when we're talking about sort of the the skepticism of institutions, I think at the the pendulums always swing. And I think there will be a time where, and maybe this is the hopeful aspect of being uh, sort of ambivalent or feeling negatively towards institutions, is that it'll penetrate in people's minds that oh, these people who have power are all full of shit as well, right? These same, you know, your uh, Harvey Weinsteins and your Jeffrey Epsteins and these people who who were some of those powerful people in their positions and had all the powerful friends around them and all their powerful friends knew what they were doing and didn't say a thing, that, that sort of will lead to a feeling that the emperor has no clothes. These people are full of shit as well. Why should they have more power in lives? I know it's hard to see right now because we're in the middle of the the pandemic, we saw people telling us what to do and, and saying, you know, well, you have to do this to get your rights back. Like, when did you become the arbiter of where our rights are? They're natural, right? And so I, I, but I do think the long-term implications of a lot of this is going to be people starting to realize, okay, well, these people are full of shit. 
they they don't actually know what's best for not even looking out for what's best for us they themselves don't play by the same rules that they're subjecting us by and we've we've seen that with you know gavin newsom and the french laundry debacle and all you know the countless examples of these people don't not following their own rules and john Kerry flying private jet to martha's vineyard where you can just take a ferry they won't part with the the slightest amount of luxury they won't do something that'll cause them the slightest bit of inconvenience like taking a private jet which you never have to actually do in america <laughs> we have airplane routes everywhere uh and they they themselves won't do that but then they'll lecture you to keep your uh, ac off right uh right. not drive the suv so i i do think there are going to be ramifications of this and and that's what sort of gives me gives me the hope i i am more hopeful than i am not not hopeful i'm sort of probably more in the hopeful spectrum i would say but this was a uh Fascinating discussion. You had so many, you had so many interesting points. I'm still thinking about right now. Um, re- really enjoyed it, and uh, would love to do it again sometime. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. I appreciate you having me on your show, and uh, like I said, it's been a lot of fun, and and I want to do it again if you are. All right. Well, Todd, thanks so much. Ashton, you're welcome, and thank you. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast. And give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks again, and we will be back next week. And probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.